This is not a new franchise. This is Fast and the Furious 25. That's what Threads <laughs> is. We know how it's going to go. This episode is a tale of two platforms. One I jumped on without hesitation, and one to which I immediately said, hell no. In other words, this episode is all about Substack Notes and Meta's new threads. But what it's really about is what we're looking for from the category we call social media and how we think about achieving those ends. And perhaps what it's really, really about is how we go looking for and creating meaning in the digital sphere. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores navigating the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. I'd been low-key considering a move to Substack since about 2021. I was already subscribed to a bunch of newsletters from writers that I love, and I was really intrigued by the discovery and growth features baked into the platform itself. But inertia is real. I stuck with how I'd published my newsletter for more than a decade. That is, I wrote a post on my WordPress-powered website, copied it over to ConvertKit, my email service provider, and then hit send. It wasn't broken, so why fix it? Then Substack launched Notes. As soon as I got the email, I began my relocation project. If you've heard about Notes, you're already a Substack power user, or you heard about it because Elon Musk had a temper tantrum assuming that it was designed to compete with Twitter. Otherwise, it's not a platform that's made a whole lot of waves. It's clear that Notes wasn't designed to be a Twitter killer. What it was designed to do was make it easier for writers to connect with each other, talk about their work, and share smaller well, notes that they didn't necessarily want to send out via email. And my experience of those features has been delightful. In the first week or two of moving to Substack, I spent a good bit of time engaging with notes. But as time has passed, I've gotten into a good routine of sharing, connecting, and commenting almost daily, but without the time encroaching on deeper work. Even that small shift, though, was all that I needed to stop feeling any desire to go to Instagram. Now, for any listeners who know my Instagram content from the last couple of years, that's probably come as a bit of a surprise. I sunk a lot of time and energy into creating the best content I possibly could for that platform. My audience grew there as a result. But the opportunity cost just became too great. I knew that I could easily do more long-form writing if I dropped the six hours a week, at least, that I spent making content for Instagram. And I knew that more long-form writing would do more for me than any number of Instagram posts ever could. Instagram ceased being a place where I wanted to construct meaning. 
It was never meant for the kind of meaning making that I do, and I was always struggling to bend its constraints to my will. But Substack was a place designed to facilitate meaning making in the way I work best. It's a place where I can easily connect with others who work in similar ways and think about similar things. And so far, my only regret has been that I didn't move to Substack a couple of years ago. As I said, when I got the email from Substack announcing notes, I was ready to jump. But when I heard about Meta's new app, Threads, I had the complete opposite reaction. Has Twitter finally met its match? It only launched last night, but Meta's new Twitter rival is already exploding in popularity. Threads takes direct aim at Elon Musk's struggling app with 30 million people signing up in less than 24 hours. Earlier, I said it was a hell no, but really, my reaction was more like, eh, I'll pass. But that wasn't the case for my guest today. Jay Akunzo, a writer, speaker, and podcaster, posted to LinkedIn that he was now on Threads, too. And Jay and I don't agree on everything social media related, but we do share very similar foundational beliefs about online content. So I sent him a LinkedIn message. Any chance you've got time early next week to talk about Threads? What went through your head when you saw Meta launch Threads? Oh, again? <laughs> In case you missed it, Meta, the parrot company of Facebook and Instagram, launched Threads on July 5th. It was already in the works, tentatively scheduled for an end-of-July release, but when Musk decided to rate limit the number of tweets users could see, Meta saw an opportunity. By July 10th, there were 100 million people using the new platform. Now, there have been a bunch of new platforms hit the market since the muskification of Twitter began at the end of 2022. But Threads, unsurprisingly, has left them all in the dust in terms of traction and scale. Now, Threads piggybacks on Instagram's user base, so it has a decided leg up on the competition. Lots of people have joined just because it's there and it's easy. But I knew Jay would have thought about his decision to download yet another app more than the average Threads user. I thought to myself, like, this is something I can fit in the nooks and crannies. It doesn't have to be pristine and produced and on camera with a microphone and lights and all these things. Because honestly, my podcast and my essays and my public speaking are those things, carefully cultivated, practiced things. So when I show up, on Instagram or whatever, I do like giving the behind the scenes, but I'm so tired of being on camera in that moment that I'd rather just write something quick. Mm -hmm. So like, I liked that it was text-based. That was one. I liked that uh, I could start with this very narrow focus and just tell myself, although my frenetic brain wants me to own lots of themes publicly and explore lots of themes publicly, frenetic brain slash curiosity, I suppose, I've always kind of envied those people who were like, I just want to obsess over this one thing and kind of be a maniac about it. And I'm going to go really deep in that. You were on vacation and you yes. signed up for this? Yep. So I was on vacation when I signed up for this. I have two little kids, four and two. 
meaning when we're on vacation and depending on where we were, and in this case, it was most of the week, I think like seven out of 10 days, we had one room with two adults and two little kids. And so the little kids go to bed very, very early. And so if we're like not in a position to like go out onto a balcony or there's not an adjoining room, my wife and I are just like in the dark with the kids at like 7.30, 8.30 p.m., like each with an earbud in watching the bear or something. And so there was like more opportunity to just kind of like tinker and play and have like a low stakes and like distantly professional thing that I was working on mm -hmm. and like not care about it at all. Like there was, it really felt like I'm going to muck around. It's kind of fun. I'm just figuring this out. And mostly I'm just seeing friends around the industry join it because my network happens to be a lot of early adopter types. Yeah. So that was nice too. So that was like, it was like there was a social component, not in the social media sense, but in the actual social component of like people sure. you like to connect with. Um, so it didn't feel like I'm taking a break from vacation to like do work. It didn't feel like that. Kate Lindsay from Embedded wrote a great little piece about Threads on Monday called Threads is a Mecca of Millennial Brain Rot. Now, I still don't quite know what that means. I mean, I get the idea, but uh, I mean, what does that mean? But I think that's sort of the point. What does this all mean? Does it mean anything? What are we even doing here? Anyhow. Kate Lindsay wrote about her initial excitement for a platform that would feel maybe like primal Twitter. But instead, her first impressions of the app were that the same crap from the rest of the internet had already made its way onto threads. I think the argument could be made that the vapid conversation starters, internet cliches, and brands pretending to be people were always already existing, as the phenomenologists would say. Their old magic from before the dawn of Thread's time. Lindsay writes, quote, Given the opportunity to build the social media culture we say we've been missing, we immediately resorted to posting the worst cliches from today's internet. Is this post from a person or a brand? Because they're both employing the same hokey syntax to post empty engagement bait. This behavior says something about how we view social media now. It's not for connection, but performance. I completely track what Lindsay is saying here. For instance, the few people I've seen doing Twitter things on notes made me super anxious. Oh no, are we really going to do this here? Now, luckily those posts have been few and far between, at least in my feed. Now, I think Jay's tolerance for this kind of performance is probably much higher than mine, or as he told me, he just doesn't consume that much social media. But that doesn't mean he can shrug off all manner of performative ick. I asked Jay how he thinks about the performance component of social media today, and specifically how Threads fits into it. Two things, one really quick, one a little bit more nuanced. The really quick thing is like, I'm a public speaker, I'm an author, I'm a podcaster. I love performance. Like I love to perform for people and I love to make that performance feel great. Your favorite comedian, your favorite actor, your favorite musician, they feel the same way. Performance itself is not a bad thing. So therein, we're using this word to mean something that it doesn't quite mean. You know, back to, you were doing the Princess Bride thing. He didn't fall? Inconceivable. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. What do you really mean by that? 
I think what you mean is maybe there's like a little veneer or a thick veneer of ick factor to the way you're showing up. Maybe it's like you're trying to puff yourself up. Like you see some creators in their social bios putting a nickname in quotes for themselves. The podcast guy. It's like, what are we doing? This is like, I'm in, I'm back in middle school taking a three point jump shot going, call me white lightning. Like that's what we're doing. What is happening? No one gave you that nickname. Putting it in quotes makes it feel worse. Like, why are we doing this to ourselves? What? It's me, the lizard. You can start calling me that. Look, we appreciate it. So it's become part of the culture that like you're puffing yourself up. That version of performance where it is transparently like self-aggrandizing or selfish, not what we're going for. But when the microphone is hot and the lights are on or I walk up onto a stage or Tara says, Jay, can I interview you? I am performing. I'm trying to give you a version of me that best suits the delivery vehicle that is, in this case, an audio interview. There's nothing wrong with that. I think getting great at that is actually a service to the audience. So that's like a technical point. The nuanced point is the reason we're thinking about this so much is it's because people don't really have a premise that they're trying to explore. They're just saying like, well, I'm the premise. Follow me mm, on social. Mm -hmm. Or it's the me show, whether it's literally your show or it's like how you project you know, the, the name here podcast, we've, if you are just so focused on, well, I'm exploring this notion of resonance in creative work. And I want to help people make resonance and storytelling and the ability to connect a superpower in a world obsessed with optics and reach. Okay. Resonance over reach. That's my premise. I'm going to show up everywhere and try to explore that. And I'm so focused on that idea in service to you, the listener, the reader, the audience, the customer, that it's almost like I don't have time to think about am I performing or not, right? Because it's like, well, I'm exploring something and I'm trying to put that in the best vehicle here versus here versus here, best format, best delivery here. I think it's because it's become so self-focused that now we think about terms like authenticity and mm -hmm. performance and all those things. Um, it's like, you don't have a premise you're exploring. So now you're just trying to say like, well, follow the person, follow the name. It's the externalization of me. We're all inventing personas for no other reason than we want you to follow the persona. Whereas a host, an author, a guide, a storyteller, a comedian, a speaker, these people are creating personas perhaps to serve some kind of greater cause or idea. And that part is missing. Even if you show up on one social network, you can still have a premise that you're exploring. And that allows you to sort of step back from a lot of these buzzy words and maybe make sense of what you should post and how a little bit more clearly. I agree. Performing on social media isn't a problem. It's how we perform that can create the ick factor, as Jay put it. Discourse around social media tends to pit performativity against authenticity. Either you're being authentic, your true self, warts and all, or you're performing in the hopes of attracting attention and dollar signs. But I'm with the existentialists on this one. There is no such thing as the true self. There is no inalienable core underneath all the layers of social conditioning, economic pressure, and role fulfillment. We are who we make ourselves to be at any given moment. That is, authenticity is how we respond to our circumstances and limitations in good faith. Authenticity is performative. Now, in philosophy and critical theory, the notion of performativity has a different connotation than it does in wider culture. It doesn't mean fake, 
or showy or self-aggrandizing. Performativity first entered the realm of theory in John Austin's book, How to Do Things with Words, in 1962. Austin explains how some language describes things as they are, and other language shapes and changes the world. And Judith Butler used Austin's notion of performativity in their exploration of gender performance. We don't have gender, argues Butler. We do and make gender. It's an identity formed in and performed for social context rather than something we're born with. And that social context bit, I think, is instructive here. When Jay talks about the ick factor of people puffing themselves up, coming up with their own nicknames, declaring themselves to have the formula for X, Y, or Z incredible result, the performance is siloed, individual. It doesn't feel authentic because it's not social. It lacks context. It's not the product of interaction, context, or intersubjectivity. It's the contentless invention of one imagination. Social media gave us tools for connecting and performing identities with each other across barriers that had once seemed insurmountable. We tried on all sorts of roles. Some stuck, others didn't. The identities that stuck are the ones that felt right to us and to those we were interacting with, with the context we were operating in. The ones that stuck created bonds between ourselves and others. To be clear, I am not talking about gatekeeping identity through other citizens of the internet. I'm not suggesting that your identity isn't true if someone else doesn't deem it so. What I mean is that it was through this newish social context that identities took on substance and solidity in ways that simply weren't feasible before. We want to, need to, be recognized. And social media gave us a place to be recognized. We make meaning through those social... We make meaning through our social interactions and social context. Our identities take on greater weight as they are recognized and engaged with in the social sphere. I chose notes because it's the kind of social interaction I needed to give a set of my own identities more solidity. Jay chose threads because it's a form of social interaction that helps him perform an aspect of his identity that he wants to lend more substance to. I mean, somebody that I think runs in, in our similar circle, um, Charlie Gilkey. He, Who I'm talking to next. Fantastic. Tell him I said hello. We had <laughs> one very awesome call and a few social interactions, but he said to me something I won't forget, which is first they come for your content, right? They don't know who you are. That headline seems to appeal to me. I'll click and read. There's no trust yet. Then the relationship forms. So first they come for your content, then they come for you. And then finally they come for what you represent. And I think what people are trying to do is they're trying to sort of leap to the point where it's like, look, I represent success and I'll project my success to you without walking that path of trust. Where mm -hmm. over time people go, Tara represents to me, Jay represents to me, Sam represents to me, whatever. I'll pick one that maybe is relevant to me. Like the ability to thrive on the internet through content that is considered and nuanced and story style and not hype filled 
and optically there, but nothing is substance, right? Like quality, if you want to call it that version of quality, like that person represents the fact that you can do it this way. And I want to learn how they do it so I can do it too, right? Everybody kind of wants to be that there, but they don't want to go through the trials and tribulations and building a body of work and experimenting and, you know, all the things that look like false starts and some wins here and there to then get to that point. So if that's how you're thinking, you're like immediately leaping there. Yeah, you get people nicknaming themselves or you get people going, I help you grow your newsletter to 10K subscribers in 10 weeks. And then you talk to them about their newsletter and they're like, I have 500 readers. Like what, what are we doing? Like you get the, the things we're very familiar with that maybe your listeners go, Ugh, not for me. I think it's the product of like us trying to just leap too far ahead without doing the work to earn real trust. Now, I didn't want to ask Jay to predict the future of threads, although I kind of wanted to, uh, nor do I want to predict the future of Substack and Notes. But I did want to ask him about the sort of open questions he's thinking about in these first few days of threads. We, we discuss platforms like threads as like the product. Like I wish the product had a Giphy integration, which I see people talking about on threads now, so I could easily post GIFs. I wish the product had uh, like the DMs are missing entirely. And so we think about it as the software is the product. Mm -hmm. eh. Time and time again, these companies have proven, look at how they make money. We are the product, right? So it's not hard to predict where this is gonna go. It's gonna have a beautiful little moment and then the business that owns it, Meta, is an ad network, and they were famously running out of ad inventory. And so this is how they add more. And so it's gonna be sponsorship-based, or advertising-based rather, CPM-based. And also there's gonna be some data they sell, or lots of data they sell, I should say. Like, it's not hard to know where this is gonna break. Like, over time, it's gonna look like, you know, other, I, for, I wish I could cite the author, there's a, a, a writer who keeps writing about the enshittification of it's social It's Cory Doctorow. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to get shitty because the model dictates it. The business model, the incentives, the way they make money is going to break that way. Here, Jay's talking about the real challenge of using online tools for social interaction and performance. The money has to come from somewhere. For all of the legacy platforms, that means ads. And ads require data. And data is most legible and valuable if it's flat and predictive. Meaning platforms would rather you become a two-dimensional representation of yourself with formulaic social connections rather than perform the odd mix of identities you hold across multiple groups of people. So the question I have is, will there ever be a business model from any social network that can truly move the needle for whatever dimension you're thinking about, fulfillment, self-expression, business results for you, which is not CPM based. And Twitter, for all the issues going on, et cetera, and all the lack of feature sets that would prompt you to do that, they're at least like signaling what it could be, which is subscribe, pay, you pay for access to functionality. Like that's a far bet. I'd rather buy Salesforce as a software company, HubSpot as a software company. Like, I develop podcasts for authors and speakers and entrepreneurs. Like you're buying something and you know what the product or service is. We're the product. We're the, the, the thing on offer is the users and our data to advertisers or people that want to buy that data. Like if that doesn't change, we just know we've seen the movie a million times before. This is not a new franchise. This is Fast and the Furious 25. That's what Threads <laughs> is. We know how it's going to go. 
Substack chose a business model that prioritizes the success of its writers. Substack makes money when I make money. Otherwise, they don't make money. They are incentivized to introduce my work to people who will love it and upgrade their subscription. Those features are built in to the platform. Is it perfect? No! But I'd rather be in bed with a company whose goals are aligned with mine than one that will inevitably spiral into inshittification. That said, I think Jay's thinking on why he's on threads, even though it's going to get shitty, and probably much, much sooner than later, is solid. He has a clear purpose for the time he spends there and an identity he wants to explore and give substance to. That's meaningful, even in its ephemerality. Actually, it reminds me of Kate Tyson's essay, Queer Failure. Just because something has a beginning and an end doesn't mean it's devoid of meaning. Just because you hop on threads for a few months before you try something new doesn't mean your time there was meaningless. Substack generally, and notes particularly, is meaningful to me because it's a digital space where I can perform the sort of intellectual writer identity I've wanted to hold for so long. It is an extension of a project of meaning making that I've been engaged in for more than 20 years now. Substack is one conduit for that meaning making, but it probably won't be the last. Now, I am sure that you knew going into this episode that I was not going to break down threads and notes into a tidy list of pros and cons. I don't think it's a bad thing to be on threads, nor do I think you should be on notes. But as I said, I'm going to pass on threads and keep plugging away at notes. Ultimately, I think threads or notes is most interesting as a way to explore the question of what we really want from social media and how we might behave in order to make that real. And that's a solid social media strategy, regardless of what platforms you give your time and attention to. Meaning, like gender or race, is socially constructed. We make it. We perform it. It exists because of the ways we interact with the world and those who inhabit it. If we want more meaning on social media or anywhere else, and less of the superficial ick factor, it's our job to behave in a way that makes that meaning real. The platforms can give us the technology, but only we can make it meaningful. Huge thanks to Jay Akunzo for responding to my urgent request for an interview. You can find him on threads, of course, but also check out his podcast, Unthinkable, and his newsletter at jayakunzo.com. Plus, you can learn about how Jay supports creators at creatorkitchen.com. Thanks for listening to What Works. My goal is to expose the assumptions and hype that make up the 21st century economy and reveal the ways in which our work and culture are shaped by harmful systems. Every episode of What Works is also published in essay form in my newsletter, 
Subscribe at whatworks.fyi, where you can also chip in $7 per month to support my work, get premium content, and discounts to workshops. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a podcast production agency for people changing the way we think about culture, creativity, leadership, and work. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer. And Sean McMullen is our fearless leader and executive producer. What Works is produced on stolen land. We're grateful to the Susquehannock and Conestoga peoples who stewarded this land for thousands of years before the arrival of white colonists. The Yellow House is on the unceded land of the Kutenaha Nation and the tribes of the Salish and Kalispell. <laughs>